Welcome to a new episode of the Legacy of John Williams podcast. I'm your host, Maurizio Caschetto. In this new episode, we'll make a stop in a galaxy far, far away with three special guests to discuss the latest film school by Maestro John Williams, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. Good morning, everyone. We're starting our new Star Wars adventure today, as you probably have noticed. So we're going to play now the first piece then. 1976, when I was 12. Okay. <laughs> And it sounds like this. Today I'm honored to have three special guests with me to discuss the latest work from Maestro John Williams, The Rise of Skywalker. So I'm pleased to welcome back again music theorist Frank Lehman, who was guest in a recent Legacy Conversation podcast with me. Hello, Frank, and glad to have you back again. Hello, it's really nice to be back. Thanks so much. And today I'm also honored to have for the first time as a guest one of the most brilliant guys I know, film music writer Doug Adams. Hello, Doug. Hi, Maurizio. And last but not least, uh, from UK, uh, we have film music expert Jim Ware joining us in the conversation. It's great to be here, finally, Mauricio. So guys, really, thank you very much for accepting to do this talk with me. I was very keen to do something about this last Star Wars score because I think it's a very special moment for all of us who grew up listening to the music of John Williams and you know, learning to love film music and music in general. And um, to kick off the conversation, I would like really to start uh, from the end, the last score, The Rise of Skywalker for the last movie, the ninth episode of Star Wars. Uh, so I'd like to start with Frank, because the last time we talked, we tried to speculate a little bit about it. Yeah, I'd have to go back to that conversation, but my suspicion is that we had maybe a 50% accuracy for the speculations we made. Um, as far as my overall opinion of the score, I think it, it's growing on me for sure, as these you know, musical works tend to do over time. Uh, there's so much to digest that I think I'm going to really need to study it quite a bit more to really wrap my head around it. But from what I know now, I, I really like it. I think it, it may end up being my favorite of the sequel trilogy scores, just based on the, the impact of sort of emotionality and, and the way that Williams knits things together. Um, how it works as a cap on the entire nine movie saga is maybe a different question, but as far as putting a bow on the package of the last three movies, as William said, I think it's really successful. I think it's an extraordinary score in that respect. I remember that we talked about, uh, you know, your uh, expectation or maybe desire was to have some of the prequel themes back into this last work. And this is something that didn't happen for, for I guess, for a variety of reasons. But were you especially surprised about the absence of maybe set pieces like Duel of the Fates or something like that? 
Uh, yeah, I, honestly, I was a little surprised. And I think in some regard, it was a bit of a missed opportunity. Uh, we don't know the full story because there are maybe hours worth of written and recorded music that we haven't heard before. So I don't want to say that Williams didn't definitively recruit music from the prequels, but you're right. We don't get any clear references to Duel of the Fates. I mean, there are a few passing, um, reworked passages from mostly sort of neutral underscore moments in the, the prequels, but it's really not engaging directly with the music from those movies. Um, I think it, it still works. It, it works on its own terms, but as far as a, a summarization of all my movies, I, there does seem to be a little bit of a missed opportunity there. You know, as as Frank said, I think one of the interesting things this does is it feels like a wonderful capstone to the to the three sequel scores. Um, like him, I think I was expecting to hear more references from older scores, but in a way, I think maybe I was relieved that that it didn't come out that way. Um, Williams has always been, you know, a, a composer that moves forward, and I think his his musical voice in the three Star Wars trilogies, they're pretty separate for each one. Some of that is storytelling. Some of that I think is just his own, his own, uh, you know, technique. Uh, so I think emotionally episode nine works as a nice ending to all nine scores, but musically, I think it feels like it's related to the sequel scores more directly. Um, and it doesn't feel like some sort of artificial attempt to force him back into, you know, a, a different era or a different voice. So, I don't know how much he he necessarily tried to look backwards to uh, to his own style. Certainly some passages and things like that. But I don't know that he tried to become the John Williams of the 70s and 80s and and 90s and 2000s. This thing's been going on for a while. I think he just tried to to write in his you know his most naturalistic voice. And I, I think that's a good thing. That's why it came out as such a uh, you know it's a very organic score in terms of his own writing style. And I think that's great. So, Jim, uh, do you think that um, in the sense there was maybe some clear direction from the filmmakers to follow some established route in the sense that, for example, in The Last Jedi, uh, from all we know, from what Ryan Johnson, the director, uh, told the press, he and the, and the editor mapped out a, a very specific temp track, and they gave that to Williams as a reference point to build upon his own uh, score. So do you think that happened as well uh, with J.J. Uh, Abrams? From, because from what we know, his own methodology is probably a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, my, my understanding of Abrams' methodology is that it's probably closer to Williams' work on the original trilogy, certainly in terms of how the film is spotted. I can't really speak about exactly what happened on The, on the Last Jedi, and I'm, and I'm still not 
completely convinced of the reports that there were no spotting sessions at all on that. That's that seems very unlikely to me. Um, but I think I think one of the main things that probably affected how Williams approached the score was the just the changeable nature of the film over the extended scoring schedule because like the force awakens also uh, directed by abrams um this was scored over a period of about six months uh and, I, and i'm sure what williams was actually recording too was quite different to what ended up on on the screen which we've heard we've heard in a, in a number of places on both the official album and the for your consideration album a number of pieces of passages of material that are nowhere to be found in the film yeah yeah that's interesting because i think that uh, from all we know, probably the film was worked up until the last moment. I think yeah. that the last recording session was uh, late in November. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think Williams is a professional. He's he's used to these sort of situations that where things go right down to the wire. Um, and in terms of the score itself, I, I'm just amazed that it doesn't crumble under its own weight with just the sheer volume of thematic material that's that's in this thing nine nine films worth of material that williams has now uh and it's it's a it's amazing i mean i i would certainly love to hear more of the apparently three hours of music that were recorded let's try to to focus about uh you know the actual uh musical content of this last score there are essentially two big new thematic uh set pieces one which is called the rise of skywalker on the soundtrack album this new theme especially in the concert arrangement version, is really playing on a meta-textual level. Definitely sounds like a musical sunset. It's full of uh, serenity and fulfillment, uh, both in the, how he uses the harmonic language and how the piece is orchestrated uh, with these translucent colors in the strings and the woodwinds. So it, I'd like to, to put it this way. For me, this is his own ode to Star Wars. But at the same time, it's the realization that for him, it's a very big phase of his musical life that is closing. I, I definitely agree with that. It, it feels like it's, uh, it's tinged with nostalgia and, and it's William saying goodbye in a way, I think.
yeah, there's this lovely combination um, of sort of youthful optimism and a bit of maturity and having worked through some sort of trauma that particularly um, is apparent to me in the middle section of the concert arrangement, which is a little more pain, a little bit more developmental. Um, and, and it seems to speak to the way that he interprets these movies, which are, you know, first and foremost, a, a kind of children's entertainment, you know, but with also a, a much um, a higher level mythological significance in the way that he you know, has worked through these ideas over the course of you know, 40 plus years. I think it's, it's pretty strongly evident in, in the, the tonality of the piece, not to use that in the technical sense, more of an emotional or evocative sense. I think maybe you can use it in the, in the technical sense, though, to a degree. The melodic writing is very, very straightforward, very youthful, uh, but the the treatment of the harmonies and the, the constant modulation of that little short idea is, um, you know, I don't want to say it's not sophisticated in the sense that um, you know it approaches atonality or anything like that. But it's 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 a it's a very mature bit of writing, and I think that's I, <laughs> it's a mature person saying goodbye to. Uh, a, an element of childhood, you know, it's a kid's story, and I think it's a beautiful thing. A musician that probably I'll, I'll let remain nameless for the moment, but once told me that in Williams' concert work, they found, and this is someone that knew him and works with him and all that sort of thing, but they found the bassoon concerto to be the work that was closest to his own personality, where he wasn't putting on a specific voice. And I think there may be an element of that to this piece. And Maurizio, as you say, it, it does have a meta quality to it. It's it's not just here's the end of the story of these characters, that there's something about the end of the saga, the end of this phase of his musical life, or, or at least a turn of a page. And I, I think that's maybe why I found it, uh, it's a very moving piece. I think it's, it's quite beautiful. And I think every time I go back to it, you find a new little contour that's, uh, it's quite surprising, quite beautiful. And it, it doesn't exist in a, a bubble in the Star Wars universe either. I mean, I, no, I don't think no, there are no. any especially um, uh, literal quotations of other themes or other sort of musical ideas, but I hear shades of Ray's theme. I hear shades mm -hmm. of, you know, the rebel fanfare here in the, mm -hmm. the harmony. It, it is very much of a piece with, with um, eight plus other films and solo and galaxy's edge, all the work that he's done for the series seems to kind of be funneled into this in, in some unexpected ways. Uh, it, it really, it does reward re-listening quite a lot. 
definitely it definitely feels fundamentally connected to everything else um i think in one of the cues on the uh, on the album i think it's we go together uh there's a section where it, where it almost sounds like it's going to go into luke and leia's theme but doesn't quite get there <laughs> um and yeah it, de- it definitely sounds like it could go in a number of different directions and it's con- connected to a number of different characters At the same time, it's it's pretty unique in that in the the Star Wars catalog of themes, you know, it does have a certain quality to it that you don't really get in anything else other than maybe some shades of that in in the theme he wrote for Anakin. But it, it sort of stands alone as a you know as connected as it is, and I completely agree with that. I think it has its own uh, specific energy to it. Uh, you know, the way I see it is attached to uh, to Ray. In a way, it's kind of an evolution of the theme for Ray because mm. uh, Williams seems very inspired uh, f- by Desi Ridley's portrayal of, of the character. And, you know, and as Ray fulfills her destiny at the end of the film, it seems that Williams himself really achieved a sense of completion or even closure to this, you know, to the character's journey, but also to the whole series. Especially at the beginning of the theme, um, the constant arrangement with the flute, it sounds like a, a you know a major mode version of of Ray's theme. No, I, I hear I hear the same thing. I, it, I'm not sure I can establish definitively, right, what, yeah. what Williams was thinking. But the first thing I, I heard when I listened to that the initial theme, it's actually you know two separate but very closely related melodies in that concert arrangement, and the first one, um, which I have heard referred to as victory or um, the hymn, or I don't know. I don't know if the, the community has settled on non-abstract uh, levels. The community is never happy with the names you come up for themes. Don't worry, <laughs> I can tell you from experience. I'm, I'm not even going to attempt to speak for the community. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I do think it could be a, a real, meaningful, thematic transformation of the Ray Chimes motif. Like yes, you said, completely agree. And he's, you know, the the fan community has had a little bit of fun with with. Williams as a person in the way that he's he's referred to Daisy Ridley as an actress, um, but I think he musically he treats her in a very fatherly way, and this is sort of him allowing her to go out into adulthood and to enter the world and to leave 
the part of the story that he's involved with. And there's something very sweet about that. You know this anecdote from um, Last Jedi, but when he was asked to score the, the famous hand touch scene between uh, Kylo Ren and Rey, that his initial instinct was to, I guess, assume this very fatherly, protective role and like, <laughs> extremely aggressive and threatening music, as though from our perspective or Luke's perspective, and Ryan Johnson, who uh, you know saw the scene differently, encouraged him to write something a little bit more, I'd say, ambivalent. It's not romantic, and as far as I hear, at least. Um, and, and it, it seems like even in this score for uh, episode nine, that, that all, all the characters he really lavishes the most development and the most musical um, attention on Ray. It's really, it's, it's quite edifying to listen to over the course of these three, three scores. You hear his evolution. It gives a beautiful focus to the yeah. scores too. There's, there's a distinct personality to these sequel scores, which is one of the things... You know, as I say, I, I thought it might be neat to take a trip down memory lane with episode nine, hear a bit of this and a bit of that. But he keeps his focus very, very precise. I mean, he's, you know, he's obviously one of the world's great musicians and he knows exactly how to do these things. But it was it was very nice to realize that he did find that through line in the six plus hours of storytelling of this of this chapter, these three chapters, however you want to look at it. Um, and it has such a beautiful focus because of his treatment, uh, musical treatment of the Ray character. Yeah, totally. And there are also a lot of beautiful variations and modulations of her theme throughout the movie that are, aren't nowhere to be found on the soundtrack album, which is quite a missed opportunity in a way, because especially the, the, the early scenes where she's training in the forest, uh, where really he goes through some very exciting and heroic modulation of her theme like he never did in the other two movies.
I, I hope whenever the, the full chronological, beautifully put together album version of this score arises, we will have um, a lot to talk about because there are so many really, you're, you're catching variants of her theme and others that, that are nowhere to be heard. And I suspect that there are interesting developments and, and interactions among themes that we're not hearing yet. I'm sure, I'm sure there are. I mean, it, it, we've already seen deleted scenes from The Last Jedi that were fully scored by Williams. I, I'm sure the same thing has happened on this picture. That's one of the things I like about this trilogy the most is is there's a greater emphasis on development than there is on creating a constant stream of new motifs or new themes. And it, it because of that, there's there's more uh, variety and more development in the in the principal material than I think maybe in the original three score or uh, two trilogies at this point. Certainly for the, the prequel trilogy. I mean, I think of, of the themes that were written for those three, only really Across the Stars and maybe Anakin's theme get something approaching the level of, of a, a compositional detail and working out that we see in these for a host of themes. Ray, but also the March right. of Resistance and Kylo Ren. And even even at that, the uh, the Anakin theme sort of disappears through that series too. Yes. Or at least well, I was I was one of the people... Uh, crossing my fingers, hoping that there would be some sort of callback to that theme in this movie as a element of uh, adding some symmetry. But well, he did sort of absorb the language of it, though. I mean, the Rose theme yes. has a similar mm-hmm. language. This new Rise of Skywalker theme has the, a, a similar language. So there is, you know, at the time that was at least a slightly new color that he introduced to his Star Wars writing. And even if that theme didn't carry through the series quite as much, the the harmonic language that he sort of gave a fresh eye to that that did carry through so i think that's a cool thing i was quite surprised to see this new uh evil motif he literally called anthem of evil my understanding is that initially it was called the psalm of the sith and then he changed the title later or someone else did as perhaps the rise of skywalker theme is uh an evolution of the race theme. This new evil theme is uh, an evolution of the Kylo Ren material, but he doesn't jettison, uh, you know, the original Kylo Ren thematic material, but instead he adds this new element uh, to it. I 
heard some kind of um, references to the theme in the Revenge of the Sith, in the scene where Palpatine uh, explains the old Sith legend uh, to Anakin to turn him to the dark side. You, and you hear this very religioso uh, motif, which is similar to the one in this new film. Did you ever hear the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise? No, I thought not. It's not a story the Jedi would tell you. It's a Sith legend. Darth Plagueis was a dark lord of the Sith, so powerful and so wise, he could use the Force to influence the midi-chlorians to create life. He had such a knowledge of the dark side, he could even keep the ones he cared about from dying. I, I noticed that too, that there is this kind of liturgical quality to the, the anthem, especially as it's presented in what may be a concert arrangement form on the album. It's, it's unclear. Because I, think it the has, I think the jury's still out on that one. Uh, it has two very d different halves, right? The opening acapella choir, that sounds... Nowhere in the movie, as far as I could tell, and then the, the second half, which is more bombastic, I think that that was integrated at some point. Um, but but it is of a piece with that you know, legend of Darth Plagueis music, you know, kind of uh, in a churchy style, very tonal, but sinister, with very prominent tritones, perhaps linking it to Kylo Ren and the Emperor. I think to my ears, too, the, the opening of that Anthem of Evil theme was establishing a bit of a bridge between the, the Emperor's theme and Ray's theme. Both, you know, well, all three begin with that, that prominent minor third. And it's, it's drawn out to the degree that where you hear it in the score, you can sometimes get 10, 15 second, uh, seconds into it before you realize which theme it's actually, you know, which path it follows, which theme it's quoting. And it was nice to have a bit of material that maybe drew that interval into a highlight to sort of show that they do have this material in common. I don't know how many of these things, like anything in Star Wars stories, are necessarily planned out, but I did think Williams did a great job of of taking new story elements and making them seem as if they were all plotted years ago. He probably uh, liked to play a little bit with ambiguity, perhaps, mm -hmm. in the sense that, as you, as you were saying, Doug, that there are close relationship in terms of harmony and uh, melodic contour of the themes, that probably he suggests the first few notes of a theme that maybe our ear uh, try to detect, oh, this is Ray or this is uh, Kylo Ren or this is the Emperor. And then he goes into another direction. So I don't know if he does this to just to keep himself interested throughout you know, the writing process and to spice up a little bit uh, you know, the character of the score. Or perhaps if he was trying to link everything in some way together. I'm sure there's an element of, of all of that. That you know, this is one of the things that I've I've I think defines modern era Williams. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Uh, the Williams of, of the original trilogy, uh, his composition style, this, I, I'm trying to find a way to say this just doesn't sound like I'm, I'm trying to be in any way insulting or, or, or drawing attention to a deficit or anything like that. But there was more of a, you could see the stitches more. When he was doing an atonal passage, it stood by itself. When he was doing an octatonic passage, when he was doing a bitonal passage, when he was doing, like, they, they all sort of had these little individual moments. And they stood side by side, but they, they were very much in contrast to one another. And these days, his harmonic language has become much more integrated. You know, if he's doing if he's doing chordal harmonies, there's something beneath it that doesn't make it feel chordal. If he's doing strictly linear writing, there's enough bitonal implications that it doesn't feel strictly triadic. Um, everything is much more of a piece, and I think that's where some of these intervallic things come that we're hearing too. It's it's uh, he knows that the interval of a minor score is going to be important in the particular darkness that he wants to establish in this score. So he's going to emphasize that, whether it shows up in the Anthem of Evil or the Emperor's theme or Ray's theme or, or any of these things. You know, he, he knows, even if he's not dealing with story elements, I think he's dealing with, um, you know, the musical personality of his work and how do you make that cohesive. And I think that's one of the things, when people go back and study all nine of these scores back to back, and, and because they were uniquely composed over such a long period of time, you could hear the evolution of his own voice and his approach to this kind of, of writing. And I think that's one of the, the great changes or developments or, or what have you that, that he's gone through over the years is that it's a much more uh, cohesive style. And that's why some of the fans that you know ask for, well, we want this concert suite and we want this standalone set piece and things yeah. like that. And I think that's why there's maybe less of that because he wants things to feel you know, it doesn't feel like it's a series of cues. It feels like it's a two hours and 10 minutes of music that just flows endlessly. Right. And, and that's particularly true, I think, in the, in the action writing. Um, it's yes, been a long yes. time, with maybe the exception of the scherzo for X-Wings, although I'm, I'm still not convinced that that works as well as a standalone concert piece as something like the Asteroid Field or the Forest Battle from the original trilogy. Um, the, the action writing in this Episode nine, it's, it's amazingly well integrated and very rarely are we finding cues that have individual sort of motivic markers. That might be the case in the speeder chase, which apparently was almost entirely jettisoned for the, the, the film version of the score. But otherwise, I mean, there, there's very little in the way of cue-specific motivic writing. I mean, you can find examples of ostinati, right, but not necessarily things of a more melodic nature. And that that... The explanation for that may be simply that Williams has so much already to work with that he doesn't need to invent new themes, that he can work with the library of 60-odd motifs he already has. And it makes for a very um, through-composed, very unified, kind of lean, in a way, uh, sort of score that that is in a, a completely different sound world, in some respects, from the original trilogy, for sure. Mm-hmm.
And I think that uh, in the sense of the leitmotif technique, he's always very, very careful about their usage throughout the score. But of course, there is also a lot of debate among mm-hmm. fans, especially about how certain teams pop up suddenly in certain key moments. And sometimes it may sound inconsequential to, to, to some years, but there's no denial in saying that Williams himself is uh, uh, very aware about the pure evocative power of these tunes now and how they affect, affect the audience. So in this new film, he didn't have to resort too many times to the force theme or Leia's theme or the main theme. You know, he quotes those quite a bit, but instead of quoting it almost all the time, it seems those moments are very carefully constructed. For example, I'm thinking about uh, the scene where Lando Carician returns uh, with the entire fleet, the whole fleet, the rebel armada coming uh, with all the spaceships. And Williams does a pretty straightforward but very exciting presentation of the main theme, you know, quoting the A and the B theme. Kind of had the feeling of, well, if I'm going to do this, this is where I'll do it. <laughs> exactly, yes. Well, there are more of us, Poe. There are more of us. fighter craft they have no navy it's not a navy sir it's just people so long sky trash who's that flyer take a guess spice runner It is, it is uh, gratifying to finally hear that B section of the main theme, which <laughs> I, I believe the last time we heard that in underscore was uh, in the, it's a trap sequence from Return of the Jedi. They're just in passing. It's sort of always a, uh, a minimal aspect of these scores, but yeah, it's a good, a good chance to finally bring it back. He's also tasked with a way to find, you know, how do you make this feel? <laughs> he scored the climax of the Star Wars saga three times now. Yes. You know, so he has to find a way each time to go, no, wait, this is the real ending. This is the real ending. So, you know, it, it is a good device for, for going, look, I'm really rounding it out this time. This is all I can do. I'm bringing back the title music. It's here. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it, it's a very effective thing. And it, it is a nice setting and it does sort of make your hair stand up on end. It's nice. It, it, it was a definite surprise hearing that in the theater. I, I was not expecting it. Sometimes I wonder how my own... Um, apprehension of these scores differs from the average audience member, right? Hearing hearing that theme uh, or, or the Darth Vader's death, uh, it, it takes me out of the movie, not necessarily in a bad way, but certainly an unavoidable way and probably does for all of us. But I, I suspect that for the person who knows this music but isn't as intimately familiar with every last musical note, that these moments are ex- 
exceptionally effective and probably don't tear you out of the, the movie in quite the same way that it might for me or you guys. No, absolutely. And, and actually, I think that many people, I think that they are very, very, uh, you know, happy to hear the classic moments, the classic tunes. And that's, I think, the, the reasoning of, of the filmmakers that perhaps ask uh, to Williams, you know, here you have to quote, you know, the classic cue uh, where Yoda lifts the X-wing, you know. And so Williams has to comply in many ways. Yeah, and and, and technically that, 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 that was several films ago, so I think you can probably get away with the callback. Yeah, I think it's also, it's very fresh to our ears because we probably listen to these albums from time to time. You know, people that are maybe not as... as uh, <laughs> Obsessive? Not as, yeah, obsessive <laughs> or shut-ins or whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, you know, to them, it, it may not feel so needle-droppy. It may just feel like, oh, there's that thing that I know. Um, you know, we hear... Oh, there's where that transitioned, and that's how he. You know, oh, this the ending is different. They do the Lydian thing here, and it's um, you know, it's it's a it's a different way of listening. Even Williams probably isn't as familiar with these passages as we are. <laughs> Yoda lifts it, and the Empire strikes back. Romero Belgard, the music editor, he said, "Oh, it should be exactly the music that we had for Yoda." And actually, JJ questioned it. He said, "Well, is that should we doing that right?" And everybody said, "Oh, yes, it has to be. It's, you know, the fans will all know." So we went back to the score of Empire Strikes Back to get those bars exactly out of them. That actual little central piece of taking the ship up is exactly as we had it before. It's an exception, the use of something literal from an earlier film. We're visiting specific themes, you know. I'm happy to do it. It's great to see these characters revisited here. Uh, I, I was just, I was so pleased that he remembered Luke and Leia for Last Jedi. And that comes back in this movie in one of those potentially incongruous moments as far as we're concerned, because it's a, a scene at the end of the film between Lando yeah. and what apparently, if you consult some of the external materials, is his daughter, although that's never made clear in the movie. Um, emotionally, it makes perfect sense that theme has this longing and sort of familial quality to it. Um, semantically, it makes no sense because it didn't, doesn't involve Luke or Leia. But I think in most cases, the the emotional quality overrides, and as it should, right? This is and that's a, always been the case. I mean, that goes back to the death of, of Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? right he's, exactly. always, he's always been willing to pick up a theme and repurpose it if it's what the emotional moment needs. And that's fine. That's part of the thing. Exactly. And Yoda's theme in Cloud City as well. In yeah. Empire. I think that I was, I was saying there for a moment, I think there may be more Yoda music used in the Star Wars 9 score saga for non-Yoda moments than the other way around. It's, it's at least getting close at this point. Yeah, and, and maybe also the entire prequel trilogy where it's quite sparingly used there. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and but do you think, guys, that Williams now sees this collection of nine scores as a single body of work for from his own perspective? And how do you guys see this collection of nine scores? Do you see it as a single entity in a way? Here's the way I see it. I see it as a really as a trilogy now, because I think that it represents three distinct uh, different phases in William's career. We can have really a, a sense of completion in the sense that uh, we start in the late 70s where he was 
uh, already a, a fully formed uh, film composer, but uh, finding his own voice and finally, you know, achieving a immense success as a composer for, for movies. And then we have the prequel trilogy where he was already established and probably considered the greatest American living film composer. And nowadays we have the last phase of his career where he's really considered the, the Yoda of the film composers. So uh, is it possible maybe for generations to come to see this collection of nine scores as a single body of work or, or not? I think, I think future listeners will, will naturally treat this as uh, an unprecedented synthesis um, of, like you said, three semi-autonomous trilogies. Um, and certainly their through lines, his musical style has changed markedly over the past 40 years, but there are you know, still fingerprints that you can hear in every score of his. And you know, the, the sheer fact that this is orchestral writing full of uh, uh, you know, uh, thematic development and uh, interesting orchestration, and that, that's something that does not persist over all of film history over the past 40 years. So that in itself is a kind of through line. Um, but I, I think that, you know, to be responsible, we will also have to acknowledge that there is a lot of disunity and contingency in the way these scores are created. And, and yes, his voice did evolve and some things recur that we wouldn't expect to necessarily recur. And some things are abandoned for inexplicable reasons. And that's just film music, right? That, that's one of the um, you know, the, the sort of natural conditions of this art form. There's not always going to be a perfectly constructed whole. We're not dealing with Wagner here. We're dealing with, um, you know, a, a composer for hire, really. But let us not forget, Wagner had to write a few bars of music in Goethe Dimmerung just to cover a set change. There were pieces <laughs> moving that he had to, you know, there's a few bars in, in there that were written specifically because of stagecraft. So these things always happen. That's a great you know, point. There's, yeah, there's no purity in any of these art forms, and that's, that's what makes them human. That's a, it's a good thing. It's a positive thing. It's not always a positive thing, <laughs> but it's, you know, sometimes these compromises lead to different, uh, different choices and different avenues. And I think maybe, maybe there's good in that as much as there can be frustration. And I think, you know, those of us that follow film music rather constantly, we get a little beaten down by the constant sense of compromise, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't know that these are as unique qualities as we see them as. I, I think it happens in everything. And do you think, uh, Doug, that this collection of nine scores will, can be considered as a, really as a single body of, of scores? Or, or is it possible to, you know, to pick them up singularly and maybe see the differences between each, each one? I think the comparison that we made quite a bit will be the Wagner one because everyone wants to see it as this, this one story that all ties together. And there are elements of that, but I think it's maybe, maybe uh, more comparable to, um, you know, the, the Beethoven symphonies or the Bruckner symphony or something where it's, it's, it's a, and, and Williams would, I'm sure lift his eyebrows right off his forehead. <laughs> hear, hear me say that. So I apologize, but it, it does represent a, an autobiographical effort as much as a storytelling narrative effort. And you can listen to Williams' technique and, and maybe outlook on life change at times, too. I think it's, it's fascinating that way. Again, he would, I'm not like that idea at all, I'm afraid, but I think that is the way it will be seen over the years.
one respect in which I think that's that's really clear is the way that he writes music for Leia and by extension Carrie Fisher in this movie, uh, who by all accounts of someone that he adored and he gets the score for passing in this movie as one of the most lovely and, and touching moments in the film score. I think we get this really uh, excruciatingly beautiful resigned uh, variation on her theme. And you can, you can hear that it's not just for her. He's sort of giving her, her a kind of epitaph um, in a very loving way. And this is something similar that was with the uh, the the second the Han and Leia Han Solo and the Princess concert arrangement 2.0, which is much more mature and sort of has pangs of loss in it that were never present in the original Empire Strikes Back variation. So you can you can hear not not just the the evolution of the characters on on the screen, but also his relationship to them as as people and as actors and uh, you know aspects of his own life. Do you think perhaps that the big difference is that when he wrote the original trilogy back in the 77, 1883, uh, he really wrote those scores one at a time, you know, as a very single and specific entities. Of course, there are references in Empire to the first score, and there are in Jedi, there are references to the two other scores. But really, he treated as much as the movies themselves were pretty defined as different movies. Uh, you know, he did the same musically. While instead, in both in the prequels and in the sequel trilogies, he wrote really as a one single score break into three acts. I, I think I think Williams, even if something is planned as a trilogy from the outset, I, th I think Williams will always primarily focus on the picture at hand. Um, I don't think he necessarily plans plans ahead for the trilogy to the, the level of detail that you might think. Um, with the sequel trilogy, I, th I think from the outset, there's probably evidence of him being told who was likely to be very important in, in terms of Ray and Kylo Ren. Um, their thematic material seems to be endlessly malleable, and, and Williams takes that in many different directions over the course of the, th the three films. Um, but uh, in the prequels, uh, I th th they, they, they don't feel to me as connected as a trilogy as... I think they would if they, if Williams had planned them as one, effectively six hour piece from the outset. Um, Attack of the Clones, for example, is very very different stylistically to the Phantom Menace in terms of how it uses the existing thematic material and how it treats the new thematic material. Um, the Across the Stars love theme is used as the basis for much of the stuff in Attack of the Clones, um, and. Uh, it's 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 almost a sort of Jerry Goldsmith like approach to spinning as much material out of that as possible. I I, I 
wholeheartedly agree. I think that the sequel trilogy sounds the most like one score split over the course of three acts. There's a consistency in material, with maybe an exception being the, as far as I can tell, the um, forgetting of all the new themes from Last Jedi. And again, this may be a result of us not hearing everything that he wrote, but uh, everything else is, you know, very carried over from Force Awakens. And, and the sound world is similar, the approach, the harmony, the orchestration. Whereas in the prequels, I, I, it strikes me that he was kind of involved in inventing a new color for each one of those scores. They all have their own very distinctive flavors. Uh, Phantom Menace is just so ebullient and overflowing with ideas. And, and in Attack of the Clones, you get this slightly more experimental sound in some ways with the percussion and the you know, electric guitars and the, pro the uh, prominence of Across the Stars. And then Revenge of the Sith feels more than anything kind of like a cantata with all the, the um, choral writing there. So very distinctive, not quite as... Uh, um, uh, uh, connected in terms of overall tone and, and he, maybe intentionally maybe because he was privy to some of the uh, developments um, later on by Disney that, that the sequel scores really do seem to be of a piece uh, all one big score I do wonder also if, if the aesthetic of the day both uh, filmic, filmically and musically is, is more, you know, these days we're more concerned with world building, we used to be more concerned with storytelling and I wonder if that creates a more consistent sound. Not not that Williams is is always one to glom onto the current aesthetic, but you know he's a very in touch type of guy, and I'm sure the 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 tenets of the filmmaking you know affected him in some manner as well. And I wonder if that's part of it. I think I think very much so, uh, absolutely. Because uh, as I was saying, if you, if you see Empire Strikes Back, uh, the film, you can totally see that from even from George Lucas himself, there was. And the filmmakers in general, there was really the, the the need and the desire to do something very different from the first movie. You know, they could e have easily, you know, do um, a straight sequel. You know, from the first Star Wars movie. Here we go to another adventure. Here we go to the same plot and to the same atmospheres. And instead, even if you see the the beginning of the movie, we see this new landscape. A planet covered in snow, and we see the the heroes struggling. And okay, they they won in the in the first movie, but they are not winning. And so the music follows that character, and also the fact that Williams decided to wrote a new theme for the evil character. Well, it's it, it's hard for me to imagine that runty little imperial motif from A New Hope carrying the dramatic weight that is required of Empire Strikes Back. I'm sure Williams could have done it, but I'm glad that he did it. <laughs> Yeah, I think Vader has so much more to do in Empire rather than just to rough people up a bit at the uh, at the behest of Peter Cushing and kill Alec Guinness. So they needed definitely needed some new material. And and again, I think it's it's Williams serving the need of the picture at hand rather than the fe feeling that he's tied to previous thematic material. He's certainly not precious about his old material. He does seem like he'd rather create than recreate, which is maybe why he's had such a long and fruitful career.
I'd like to, to touch upon William's own voice because there are a lot of uh, analysis uh, over the years that uh, specified about you know the influences. We can definitely see how when he progressed throughout the, the various films, even from the second one, from The Empire Strikes Back, he started to uh, build uh, his own musical language. He started to detach himself more and more from the you know, from the classical references, which were very clear in the first film score. So now that we arrived at the ninth movie, do you think that the score sounds really quintessentially Williams? You know, the classical references are completely gone. This is this is something that really struck me about nine that that I do try. I listen with ears for for influences, and and the influence that I heard in this score was Williams. That he he. Uh, uh, was not channeling, at least not directly, uh, other composers, either film or classical. Even in the case that we discussed this earlier, in, in 8, I, I think we detected traces of Sibelius here and there. I, I'm not finding any clear instances of pre-existing music besides what he himself has already written. And there are some unexpected um, cross-references and some very refreshing ones. Um, um, a kind of revival of some of his gothic horror scoring uh, uh, idiom, things like Dracula, and, and um, I don't know if I go quite images, but there, there's some quite threatening and mysterious and uh, unusual orchestral writing for, for the Exegol scenes and um, stuff that we haven't heard in a while, at least not in the past 10 years or so. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're hearing bits and pieces of, of William's own gradually developed musical voice, but it, it may be the, the, the fact that they, they didn't tempt this with whatever, with the... <laughs> the whole planets, you know, or Prokofiev or whatever, you know, all the many millions of precedents that can that, that people can point out. Um, this this seems like a pure Williams score, if, if there is such a thing. It really is. Uh, uh, I can point to this and say, you want to know how to write like Williams as opposed to other composers? Study The Rise of Skywalker and you'll, you'll get the quintessential um, musical voice. I think this goes back a little to, to what we were saying earlier in terms of how you can trace the development of William's career and William's sound across these nine films. Um, and although you can hear those external influences um, definitely in the original film, you hear them less and less go, going forward through the nine. The, the first score, the, the, the original one, the 1977 one, uh, can be labeled as a pastiche work in the sense that probably all the references were very very clearly you know executed i mean probably he wanted also the the audience to be able to trace back some kind of classical 
repertoire reference. But of course, he was able to also to bend that uh, postmodern kind of approach uh, to the narrative and storytelling core of the movie. That's one of the reasons why this music still speaks so effectively to, to so many people around the world. And even why, if we put a, a 42-year-old tune uh, in a movie made today, it still affects us. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the other thing to bear in mind is that Williams thought that the original Star Wars was just a one-off. And uh, I, 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 I suspect where, when he was assigned to do Empire that he, he realized that he couldn't necessarily take the pastiche approach again and, uh, and rethought things completely. There was a point in the in the 90s, I think, maybe mid-90s, where Williams uh, referred to most of his famous film work as, as having been essentially pastiche work. And I wonder if you asked him now in 2020, which is hard to believe, um, if he still if he feels that about his his film work that he's that he's done in the past 20 years or so, 20, 25 years. I wonder if he still feels that way. I wonder if he feels that he distilled in it what is his own voice at this point. And I think I think that sort of thing is is largely misunderstood anyway. I mean, any composer, if you look at their early work, you see their influences sometimes, you know, just in certain gestures, sometimes in, in very broad uh, mannerisms, you know, you can, can tell who who they grew up listening to, but it's that it's the old concept of of uh, kill your teachers, you know, you you begin with what you love and then force that out of your out of out of your bloodstream in a way. Um, <laughs> well, there's a it's quite a bit of forcing. Oh, um, <laughs> but, but it, may, it makes for a phenomenal. I mean, don't get me wrong; it's one of the best scores of all time, but. Um, I, th I think you're right to, to, that it's often overstated that this is um, somehow an aesthetic um, uh, deficiency of, of his scores for, for Star Wars and other things where you can trace influences. I mean, that's, that's just how film music works and that's also how composition works. And what we've been treated here with these gifts of, of nine scores, each of which is um, as new things to his language, um, it, you know, it's, it's quite unprecedented, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and in fact, I'd love to, uh, to, to get your own, uh, to get your own impression or ideas about uh, uh, if we have to make a comparison to anything made, you know, both for film or the console. What are the, you know, the closest thing that can be compared to to what John Williams did in Star Wars? I, th I think within within Williams' career, he's he's done what two other trilogies, so three three Harry Potters and. We'll, we'll say three Indiana Jones films. <laughs> it's debatable whether we'll include the fourth one or not. Um, but I, I don't think any of those are directly comparable to, to what he's done within Star Wars. Uh, the, the, the Indiana Jones films, f f from a sort of leitmotivic perspective, always seem to follow a very, a very set pattern just in terms of what themes get assigned to. Uh, there's, generally speaking, the Raiders March. There's a, some sort of bad guy theme for Nazis, there's a theme for whatever the MacGuffin of the film happens to be, um, and you always know what, what you're going to get um, and with Harry Potter he never really had a chance to establish any sort of model for how that was really going to work and uh, the three scores that he did complete seem quite different to one another um, St Star, Star Wars as a whole feels 
more cohesive and coherent. So I, and I don't think there's anything else within within his body of work that really compares. I'm not sure historically there's much that you could make a direct comparison to either. And I, I can't think of anything in the film world. I can't think of anything in the opera ballet worlds. I can't really think of anything. You know, it's it's not necessarily comparable to uh, a cycle of symphonies. I think it's more likely that we will see things compared to Star Wars than the other way around. And, but what do you think about, uh, you know, um, the differences with uh, what Howard Shore did with The Lord of the Rings in this sense? Uh, can the two be compared in a way or are they just too, you know, too distinctive, too different to be drawn into a kind of comparison? Not to not to uh, say which one is better necessarily, of course. <laughs> I mean, they have leitmotivic elements in that you could you could compare um, narrative approaches. Certainly they're their compositional styles are vastly different. Um, and Howard's work in in the six Middle Earth scores, despite the fact that it was done over a, a fair amount of time, was, was certainly nothing like four decades. You know, it was a much more compressed timeline. Um, so when you say you hear um, more uh, stylistic evolution in Williams's case, just because it has spanned so much uh, uh, chronological time? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think... Um, there's multiple reasons for that. His his own voice changed. Uh, the industry changed. Um, the type of filmmaking that he was working on. I mean, we we look at this as one story, but if you look at the filmmaking style between the first film made and the ninth film made, they're they're radically different, and that's going to have a huge effect on the way a composer approaches things. You know, film music. So much of it is rhythm and pacing, and that's you're you know you're indebted to the editor on that one. Yeah, I, I think the other thing to bear in mind is that uh, both for Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Uh, maybe maybe the, the Hobbit to a lesser extent. Um, it's it's an adaptation of, of of a book, and I think Howard Shaw knew from the outset exactly exactly where this was going to go, and and exactly what material he needed to write over yeah. the course of three films. More planning ahead was certainly possible yeah. at that point, you know. And, and it seems to me, uh, I mean, you can speak to this much better than I can, Doug. But there's a maybe a greater degree of systematicity in the way that Shaw. Pro- approaches his thematic material um, with with multiple film chapters in mind as opposed to, I'll mm-hmm. say, you know, the sort of mythically <laughs> ambiguous or flexible or, or opportunistic style that Williamson sometimes writes in where, you know, you may forget a theme and then return to it <laughs> after having been reminded by the director or there, there isn't a, you know, a grand narrative that he had in place in 1977 where the fruits are finally, you know, sort of sprouting now in 2019. Right. Nobody kisses their sister in Lord of the Rings. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I think I think part of what has made Williams such an incredibly successful uh, dramatist is that he, he writes from the point of view of the audience. He reacts as an audience member would. Uh, so... Almost necessarily, there's not a ton of, you know, subtextual this and that and, and hints of this. And that. It, it, I laughed a bit when, when episode seven came out. Everyone was going to go to Ray's theme and figure out who her parents were. <laughs> and I, I, I wanted so badly to yell at them, you fools, they don't know. Nobody knows. <laughs> like, there's no way that's in the theme. Even if they did know, they wouldn't have told Williams. But they were convinced they were going to figure it out. And that's not the way he works. He's, he's a reactive composer as, as a dramatist. And I think that's why he's so successful, because he feels like he's doing what we would do if we had those capabilities. Uh, to, to your point about the, the sort of uh, 
crypto analysis of, of musical <laughs> themes, which is absolutely encouraged by J.J. Abrams' filmmaking style, right? The whole mystery box idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I remember at one of the, the, the Pops concert that was the, the spring after Force Awakens came out, where you know, Williams would often premiere new concert arrangements, and he, he played Ray's theme, and he talked about his affection for Daisy Ridley, but he made it a clear point that he did not know who her parents were, and that, that our guest was as good as his. You know, maybe he was being coy, and there was some NDA that he was not allowed to break, but I, <laughs> I'm with you on this. I don't think that anyone really knew, and it, it, it speaks to his... You know, uh, it's a kind of fortuitous uh, theme in that there are these latent aspects which can very, very nicely link it with the Emperor, link it with Kylo Ren or the Force or all these other um, interconnections. And maybe he did write it in that, that kind of flexible way. But to say that this is a, a, a silver bullet that just explains the parentage of the character, well, I think this movie clearly shows that no one had any idea what was going on, um, least of all Williams, and, and that it speaks to his craft and his dramatic instincts that he can still make it work and make it feel mythologically appropriate. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know that I've seen anyone pointed out yet, but we now have a reason for the emperor's theme under that last, uh, the, the throne room, uh, scene with Snoke in, in episode eight. It all made sense. I don't think right. anyone had that planned out. I think he just thought it was a good tune for that spot and used it, but somehow his instincts always seem to be dead on and now it makes sense. So, okay, fine. <laughs> so, you know, the emperor was pulling the strings. That's why. Yeah, hindsight is a wonderful thing. It is. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Revisionist hindsight. <laughs> yeah. And, and the emperor theme in this last score gets quoted a lot in a very different guises. I see. Yeah. 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 It does. I think this is, the, this is the first time we've had a sort of full-blown action variant of it. That's right. And But it occurs, correct me if I'm wrong, but I hear it in the track Falcon Chase, which occurs in the first five minutes of the movie before we know, well, maybe we know that he's you know present, but he's not literally flying these <laughs> TIE fighters or, or whatever. Um, it, it could be an instance because the, the beginning of this movie was, um, from all accounts, quite editorially in flux up into a very last, uh, very last moment. Um, it's, a, it's a great moment. Yeah, it's a, this is sprightly action <laughs> variant of his theme in a way that, I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty sure that we haven't heard before. It's fascinating. I think the Emperor's theme and Luke and Leia are better used in the sequel trilogy than they were in the in the original trilogy, or at least at least more thoroughly used. Certainly in the case of Luke and Leia. Absolutely, yes, I agree. Especially in Episode Eight, the the, the scene where uh, Luke and Leia finally get together again was really, really one of the most powerful moments of the film, I guess.
To make a really technical point, something that I was delighted by is a return to the Return of the Jedi harmonization of the Emperor's theme, which mm -hmm. uh, differs from the way that he treated it in the prequels almost uh, in every single appearance where it was based. Here I'm really going to go rather technical, but based on a, a, a minor tonic to f minor flattens subtonic progression, which is not what happens in, in Return of the Jedi. And here we're getting the, the rather more um, octatonic uh, variation, which which goes to the major, a minor third above, and the tritone. Um, so, you know, he, he claims not to, to re-listen to his music or to study his scores very often, but some, something has to have happened there to, to bring back that <laughs> old, old Sith harmonization rather than the, the newer one. Right. I think all these things, having been revisited in the, in the last couple of years for the live-to-projection performances, have probably brought things to William's attention. And I, I, I'm sure he has approval over these things and has reviewed yes. a few things in a bit more detail yes absolutely yes speaking about also the legacy of star wars music do you think that you know the legacy of these scores will lie mostly in the future in the in the concert versions williams prepared throughout the years and that gets frequently performed or perhaps uh, these scores will be mostly analyzed and studied for what they are in the film. That, that's hard to say, isn't it? I think Williams has given some signals that he prefers us to hold on to the concert arrangements. Maybe the, the, the clearest example of this is all the pieces he wrote for Anna Sophie Mutter last year, including quite a lot of Star Wars arrangements, and he's created a huge library of, of these standalone pieces now and will undoubtedly continue to program them as long as he conducts, as long as he shows up to film night and various you know, international, hopefully, concerts. So that, that seems to be, a, a, for, to him, a personally very important aspect of how these are um, enter into whatever musical canon after, after the film series is over. Do you think that's a, a musical preference for him, or do you think he's just, he, he doesn't do the live-to-projection performances, so if he's going to conduct, he'll get out the concert pieces? Well, we know that he, he's, not, he's not pleased, although he, he never uh, uses um, too harsh language to describe his feeling of seeing the film and hearing <laughs> the intricately composed action music get drowned out by sound effects or whatever. We know that this is mm -hmm. a concern of his. So there, there may be some um, uh, self-interest in promoting this aspect of his work <laughs> in, a, in a venue where it can be heard by devoted listeners and appreciated right, 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 for right, technical yeah. complexities. <laughs> It's it's interesting though if you if you look at just what's been programmed in the past I don't know four or five years, I think the live performances of, of the full score have have far surpassed any sort of concert suites we've performed. Now that's quite possibly because they're new and they're they're making the circuit right now. But I, I wonder what that. It's probably too early to tell which will be remembered. Maybe they'll all be remembered. Um, but uh, at the moment, it seems like people are are enjoying that that way of experiencing them. Yeah, it's very it's very powerful. Yes, all the live to picture concerts that I attended, you know, you can see really the 
the people get in you know in, in, into the emotion of the of, of the music not just the movie i i think it, it's nice that it makes the music a living and breathing organic thing as well uh it just every everyone just feels more organically connected to what to what's going on in the film just through the live performance of the music um and disney seemed to be uh very aggressively promoting these live to projection performances um they recently premiered the last jedi i think i think late last year and i imagine rise of skywalker will follow at some point um so i i i, I don't see these performances disappearing anytime soon um and it's fascinating to hear a lot of music um uh, performed that you would otherwise not hear in in the sort of fairly standard star wars concert suite repertoire yeah it's a double-edged sword i mean williams writes such beautiful music that you know it, it's it's underscore music it is very odd it can be strange transitions strange little angles harmonies that you probably wouldn't otherwise tap into or harmonic diversions things like that but at the same time, uh, so many people treat these performances like a screening of the movie where, oh, how nice an orchestra showed up. So it doesn't get the kind of attention that you get when you turn it into a, a you know, a piece for violin and orchestra or what have you. Um, so it's wonderful that these pieces get to live on, but I do sometimes wish they would, uh, I don't know, find a way to change the focus. I mean, they're selling a ton of tickets, so what do I know? But I, I wish that these things would be more music oriented. I agree. I think that there's something to these live to picture performances that that can't help but siphon your attention away from the orchestra and, and mixing sometimes is, is not ideal. And our tendency as, as spectators is always to glom onto the image rather than the music, which is unfortunate because it it, it purports to, to elevate the orchestra, but we're not necessarily getting as much appreciation of what's really happening on a technical basis as we could. I, I just I think, can't pass the smell of the popcorn. Yeah, right. Or the, the I can't watch the, and the, and the rustling of the popcorn. <laughs> right. Right. right, and the little kids sitting behind me kicking me in the back of the head. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing I will Sorry, say. I'm going. I'm going grumpy, old man. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I will say: if, if, if this ever happens, um, some sort of release of study scores, notated scores of the the actual um, music as written, as opposed to the concert suites, which are you know available if sometimes quite expensive. Will, will enable avenues of research and appreciation that, that are much more difficult than they have to be right now. I mean, we're used to um, studying the soundtracks quite intently, and if we, we have luck, there's sometimes privileged access to the scores. Um, but for just a, a student who wants to learn about orchestration or to really see the motivic transformations, having uh, a kind of nicely prepared, definitive, edited version of the orchestral scores, I think, is going to be a game changer. Who knows when that will happen? I mean, the rights holders here are, you know, uh, hold, hold on to them quite uh, ardently, but we'll see. I would think the live performances probably make those scores less likely, too, because they're more concerned now with, you know, people attempting unauthorized performances. Yeah, which, which, which as, as you and I know, Doug, has been a, a bit of a major issue with Lord of the Rings material in the past. It has been, yeah. It continues to be. Yeah. But do you think that perhaps, also thanks to the fact that William sees donating all his material to the Juilliard School of Music. Perhaps that could be a catalog of his works available, you know, at least to access, maybe not to, to rent or to take away in any way or form, of course, but, you know, to try to catalog his own work throughout the years and try to establish a series of progression in his opuses like a classical composer. Yeah. Well, goodness knows I'm a fan of cataloging Williams' music, so... <laughs> 
<laughs> Although I'm not volunteering to do what I'm sure is a mammoth task when it eventually uh, comes. Of, of, I mean, the the most exciting thing for me would to be to to see sketches or, or unfinished ideas. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. ideas of his to, to really get a sense of his creative process, which is a bit opaque um, even for a film composer. We, we don't often see uh, the music in process for him. A few, a few very enticing. Uh, clips of him at the piano with Spielberg, notwithstanding. Um, so that that would be uh, revelatory. Um, yeah, it, it, I'm I'm assured it will happen. I <laughs> you know, just don't know when or who will do it. Yes, because I think that it's important to pick John Williams as a as a standard for, to study film composition, also in historical terms, but uh, also in how the the the, uh, the evolution of the language. How, how the style changed, not just his own style, but the style of music applied to film in general. I mean, he's, a, he's really a, a symbol of, of what film music uh, really went through mm. uh, in, yeah. in various different phases and very different eras. So it's very interesting to, to study his own material back when he was writing jazz scores in the late 50s, early 60s, back to, to now, to 2019, 2020, when he's writing very, very sophisticated uh, symphonic scores for, for films. Yeah, whenever that time comes, when, when those scores become academically available, it, it'll be like reading, you know, The Rings on a Redwood Forest. You can see the changes of the, of the music world and the film world all represented in, in the progression of his work, I think. Well, I think one of the most interesting things to me, this may just be because of recency bias, but to hear his music uh, in, in this still quite late romantic vein, coexist with the more contemporary model, the sort of Hans Zimmer, remote control um, style of film music composition is utterly fascinating. And, and the, the very small ways in which his, his own style has adapted under similar um, uh, needs, you know, editorial pace and the way that things are structured. Uh, and yet in so many ways, he's still, he's a holdout, isn't he? Um, the, the kind of music that he's written, even in 2019, is not so different than, I'm being very reductive because we've already established the ways of, in which it's evolved, but but compared to what Hans Zimmer is doing, um, uh, or what the Marvel movies are doing, with maybe a few exceptions, his music for episode nine is much closer to music from episode four than it is to, uh, I don't know, Guardians of the Galaxy or something.
but I think it's fascinating that his compositional process has never really changed as far as I can tell. He's still doing everything at the piano, he's still sketching, but writing incredibly detailed sketches by hand, uh, writing his standard two minutes a day or whatever. Um, and technology has never intruded on that or never impinged on that. It's wonderful. I mean, if you hire, we'll say Hans Zimmer, if you hire Hans Zimmer, you, you hire him to provide music for your film. Not necessarily, you know, a specific style or, or anything. I mean, you, you probably have to like D minor a lot, but um, <laughs> uh, but if you hire John Williams, you hire him to compose a John Williams score, and because of that, you know, they've they've sort of let his process be what it is because you're you're buying an aesthetic, and and there's a certain way that that's achieved, and they they allow him to do that. Um, you know, he, obviously he is working on very select projects these days. Uh, but I do like that this still the idea of hiring John Williams is because you want to hear John Williams. You don't want to just say, well, this guy can write, uh, do a techno thing here. And we want some, you know, Peruvian percussion here. And we want, you know, they, they want him to sound like what he sounds like. That's a very privileged thing, but it's, it's part of why he's been able to develop such a, uh, a, a personalized voice. Do you think that that would be, a legacy of his music in this sense, in the future, in the future of film music, or he will be forever uh, epitomized as the, you know, maybe the, the acumen of, of a certain style or a certain methodology. Maybe I shouldn't say this because I'm supposed to maintain some sort of scholarly objectivity, but it would really tickle me to, to know that his, his style of music, which is admittedly old-fashioned and in some sense conservative, it might actually outlive the more uh, avant-garde sort of sound designy or athematic style of uh, the '90s and 2000s and 2010s. Well, hasn't he already done that in the in the concert world? You know, like these things that were supposed to be the way of the future didn't derail that. He's he's the 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 epitome of the Schoenberg statement that there's plenty of good music to be left uh, left to be written in in C major. Well, we found the person that was supposed to write that, and he sort of brought everything back around. And I, I'm not advocating for a specifically conservative viewpoint of, of, of the music world, but, but those things that were, you know, the, the massive uh, deviations of the, of the second Viennese school and things like that. And, you know, he, he's, he's taken elef elements, not elephants, <laughs> elements of that into his score. Uh, you know, he, he uses bits of serialism and things like that over the years, not in Star Wars per se. Um, but he, he found a, a sort of more comprehensive way of approaching these techniques rather than saying, well, this is now the harmony and we're putting this away. Or this is now how we, you know, derive, you know, the, the sort of total serialism thing and all that. Um, he found a way to incorporate that into what was old rather than putting that all away and, and, and playing exclusively with these new toys. So he, Frank's quite right, you know, this this stuff that was supposed to be kind of a kitschy throwback for Star Wars has sort of returned, you know. Look, look at how many concert musicians, concert hall performers and conductors and composers list him as a major influence. I was incredibly gladdened to see when, when Episode Nine came out, how many classical composers were on social media saying, oh, I love this guy, he's a, he's a masterclass in orchestration, I grew up listening to this, he's a genius, we love him. 
you know, when he was a young man, the classical composers were were downright cruel to him. And it's it's wonderful to see that that conversation spin on its heels finally. And uh, yes, I I totally agree with that. This last statement, and that was that is actually the one of the the core uh, of the legacy of John Williams' website. I'm 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 doing, which is trying to to celebrate this aspect that the fact that we are coming back full circle now mm-hmm. with so many uh, young composers working maybe just in the classical concert hall arena, uh, citing John Williams as their major influence, which is uh, really a, a sweet way to, to cap off this phase of his career. And I'd like to, you know, to cap off our own conversation, asking you, what do you see now uh, John Williams' career going from this moment onward? Uh, based on the verve and complexity and energy of the score for episode nine, I don't think that if, if he can continue, he will, right? There's, there's no lessening of his skill or his, his passion. So I know this is his avowed final Star Wars score, maybe. Thank goodness for that, right? Um, but I, I don't know that he'll retire. Certainly he won't stop writing music two minutes worth a, a, a day. We may hear some new suites, uh, concert arrangements from this uh, series. The promise of like a, a Star Wars symphony—that—that's almost too good to, mm. to imagine. Mm. But do, but do you do you think he will maybe devote much more time to music for himself, to concert music, concert pieces for you know for his friends or for for people he likes? Yeah, maybe a piano concerto or drum concerto. I'm trying to think of what he hasn't written for <laughs> orchestral instruments yet. Yeah, I, I think there are a few avenues he hasn't explored yet. I would be very surprised if he retired. Um, as Frank says, uh, we, we already know that he, he he gets up, he writes music every day. Um, I, I f- fully expect to see more concert works for more concert works, concerti, whatever else, uh, coming from him over the coming years. Um, I very much like him to revisit his symphony, but I can't really see, I can't really see that ever happening. Um, I, I'm not fully convinced he's completely done with Star Wars. I suspect if uh, if Disney push him hard enough, he would come back and write a theme or two for, a, I don't know, a theme park or a spin-off movie if they decide to start churning those out again. Um, but no, I, I, I certainly don't think we've heard the last of him. Guys, uh, I think that we nailed a lot of very, very interesting points. And uh, but really, I hope that this will not will be the, the only time we we speak all together. 
I thank you, Frank, for coming back again uh, as my guest here. Thank, thank you. I mean, I, we all have to thank you so much, not just for inviting us, but for this amazing work that you're doing with this podcast. I mean, we've all heard poor podcasts before, but the quality of this is so astronomically high. I mean, it's going to be an incredible historical document for, for anyone who studies this music. So thank you. Well, thank, thank you for your nice words. Thank you, Doug. Uh, I was very, very, very eager to, to have you here as my guest. Uh, because I appreciated a lot of your work throughout the years. And uh, so I'm very, very happy that you accepted to be here today. Of course. Yeah. I mean, it's a thrill to do this. And I, I second that sentiment that what you're doing is, is it's important work. And I think you should be really proud of it. So thank you for having me. And thank you, Jim, because you two were on high on my list of guests to be uh, on my podcast. So thank you for, for taking some time to, to discuss uh, some John Williams with us today yeah it's it's a privilege to be here uh, Mauricio and um, please keep up the good work with the site and the podcast both of which are amazing um, this is a subject that's I think well I, I think I can speak for everyone and say this is a subject that's very close to all, all of our hearts and uh, we'd all love to come back sometime absolutely so thank you everyone and speak with all of you very soon I hope Stay tuned for new episode coming soon. Subscribe to the Legacy of John Williams podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Podbean. Be sure also to check out the website thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com for more new content and articles coming soon. From Maurizio Caschetto, thank you for listening. Until the next episode of the Legacy of John Williams podcast. <laughs>